Guys, welcome back to Seller Sessions for the fourth and final installment on China uh, with Steve Simonson. Uh, again, this is the final part. Please check out the previous episodes because this evolutionally runs along together. And in this episode, Steve's going to have some predictions uh, based on the data that's been provided previously and some new data coming up in his slides. So without further ado, Steve, do you want to take the floor? Yeah, that's that's where we're at, Danny. Uh, so everybody, we've talked about a number of things in the first three parts. If you haven't, again, seen those, as Danny said, uh, or heard those, uh, go take a listen or take a view. I definitely recommend the visual version of these because we have so many charts and graphs and pretty pictures to look at. So uh, today we're going to get into what are the lessons? What are some of the things that we should take out? And it's not just crazy old Steve talking. We're going to try to bring in a series of data points that help us understand uh, at least some of my speculation or conclusions. So, uh, Danny, everybody sees um, a chart that I, I put on the screen, but they see China overtaking the U.S. in some period of time in terms of total GDP. This is a kind of a common uh, global story that's like, how long will it be before China eclipses the U.S. as the world's largest uh, economy? Is that fair to say you've heard this? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what your predictions are on this part, but I I don't know. I can't see it happen. They, they are predictions, but with what we discussed in the previous uh, show, with the deficit of the balance that's going on in China, where it's going to be in the next 50 years. I mean, this is 220. So... 2020, sorry. So off off the basis of this chart, if we add a forward roadmap on it, I'd still think that the US will edge, but I'm just guessing. And you're probably yeah, I like it. in uh, the next slide. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I love how hedged he was, everybody. Everybody catch that? He's like, well, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but I don't want to say too much because I don't know what's well, look, happening. I've never been worried about looking stupid on this show. <laughs> they go out raw. So I think we were talking about triage just a little while ago, and I thought you were talking about some sort of unknown shipping term. Uh, well, there you go. It was Steve. triage is in a hospital place. So uh, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Don't worry. Well, There's about 750 shows embarrassing myself. So uh, we, why why stop now? You're a good company, Danny. I also don't mind being wrong. In fact, I don't know nothing about nothing. Uh, but here's something that somebody else has put together in terms of data points for us. So the U.S. and China are on a collision course for who's the largest economy. And by the way, who cares, right? Is it bragging rights? It, that in itself doesn't matter who's larger. And by the way, on a per capita basis, the, the chance of China eclipsing the US is non-existent in the next 100 years. So a lot of this just to, like, are, are we talking about who's holding a trophy? None of that really matters to me, but- Well, it doesn't matter to us, but there are people out there who run the world and it's about power and for them power is seductive and that's where they're looking to win with what we're doing we're just trying to run our businesses be as effective as possible and make some legacy money right yeah it's about right. as simple as it is yeah it, it is it is quite simple <laughs> and it's but it's beyond an academic argument uh, at a certain point whether or not this uh, you know who's in front of who but regardless we cannot stop even for a minute to give china credit for let's just say the last 20 years of extraordinary industrialization and compression of you know development into uh, a, a very much more of an advanced nation than they were you know 30 years ago 40 years ago 
even when I started going there, I would drive on dirt roads for 12 hours from Shanghai to a factory. It was a nightmare. Everybody heard, oh, Steve's going to China. He's so lucky. And it was a nightmare. Every time I would look at one of our sourcing employees and we're bouncing our heads and, you know, we've been on a road for 12 hours and it's, it sucks. It, you know, you have headaches. You just, every couple hours you have to get out just to settle your head down. And I'm talking about just the worst kind of off-roading, but that was the only way to get there. And today they have the best freeways and the best high-speed rail on the planet, bar none. And that's what they've done. So kudos to them. The question is, how did they do it? Hmm. Right. That, there, there's a lesson in here for India, by the way. If you're paying attention to India, now's the time to pay closer attention. So the first thing they did is they focused on education in a uh, in, in many ways, what I would consider a maniacal way. Right. They want to educate your kids. That's fine. But they're literally it's not uncommon to hear stories of five year olds to 18 year olds working for for 13 to 18 hours a day on studying. Right. And a lot of it is just rote memorization and stuff that's different than learning how to think. So this education has happened and it's been over the top, in my opinion. Uh, China made a strategic choice to say, hey, we're going to have some version of capitalism and allow some form of privatization. Uh, but that can also disappear at any time. They also came up with something called the 996 work ethic which Danny probably knows well, but for those listening who may not know what 996 means, it means from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, that's the hours you put in, right? Yeah. And that, that seems like a lot of hours. Yeah, Danny? It is crazy. <clears throat> it's actually over the top for the development of younger people. Like, it's great to work hard, but that that's approaching burnout. And how can you retain that level of information? So I think... I'm not I'm not with that. I don't think we should put developing young people through that level of over a long period of time. Well, I also don't think that uh, yet we cannot deny if you have a workforce that's, you know, working 40 hours a week and a workforce that works 72 hours a week, one yeah. is going to get more done than the other, at yeah. least on paper. Right. And so yeah. that 996 and Jack Ma, by the way, from Alibaba said specifically that 996 is why his company is successful. Yeah. Um, they've pushed home ownership in a huge way hmm. where the average home ownership rate is way higher than even developed nations. Yeah. Um, and so all of this has led to kind of limitless ambition, right? Uh, let's money's the top search in China, as we talked about in the prior segment versus hmm. sex in the West. Yeah. Right. So, you know, what's most on the priority in each of these societies. No wonder we manufacture everything in China, right? <laughs> correct. Yeah, that's, that is correct. Um, now, here's some of the things that may that also achieved this goal of you know record-setting industrialization, but is not necessarily as well known. Uh, massive rolling debt, both public and private uh, debts. Uh, what I call IP sticky finger syndrome. Uh, China's well known for kind of uh, basically stealing technology, stealing intellectual property, copying other people's stuff. Um, and I, whether that's right or wrong in a Chinese culture is wrong in a Western culture. And it leads Western cultures to be less trusting of, uh, China based companies when it comes to partnering up and so forth. And that's, that's led to its own unintended consequences. Yeah. Cheap labor, uh, back in the old days, labor was cheap. And so China had an advantage and they said, we need people to work because if people work and they can pay for food, they don't riot. Yeah. And, and at the time, 20 years ago, labor was cheap and even ongoing. 
it stayed relatively cheap. But in segment three, we talked about Mexico's cheaper, Vietnam's cheaper, India's cheaper. And if they can match up access to raw, yeah, if they can get access to raw materials, they'll make them powerhouses. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if they have better energy situations, right? So that's combined with the fact that no regulations, uh, that's not exactly true from a, um, empirical standpoint there were some regulations but they were rarely enforced i went to a factory one time and to achieve this particular um output on a product they needed to use chlorine bleach to to make the the product uh, a lighter tone and by the way there are other options to that they can use you know peroxide and many other things that are less volatile chemicals but they were happen to use chlorine bleach and i'm like okay um you know, that wasn't illegal. It's certainly not in China, not even in the United States. But I'm like, where's your chlorine output? And he was so proud to show me this long series of pipes putting that chlorine right out into the creek, right? A little stream right out behind, which is devastating, right? That anything in that creek is going to die. And I'm like, stop doing that. We're not going to buy anything from you ever as long as you do something like that. <coughs> so that, that low regulation uh, was a big advantage for China in certain ways, but not always awesome for for the people and the planet. Yeah. Danny, any questions? No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay, so the other thing you may not know is that China has more debt and a lower GDP and an aging population and is not the reserve currency for the world versus something like the United States. So the United States is printing money and honestly, I guess we're going to try to give China a run for its money. But right now, or let's just say as January 2021, Europe and the United States money supply was about that of China. Hmm. Now, if you add Europe and America's GDP together, way, way higher than China's, right? I mean, the U.S. alone is higher than China. But when you throw Europe in there as well, way higher than China, yet somehow China has more money supply than both of those com- countries or about the same combined. Yeah. That is not normal. And I won't get into the economic lessons of this, but if you're not a reserve currency like the dollar, then the only ones using that currency are inside the country. This implies a lot of kind of artificial uh, money money manipulation, which uh, relates to debt. Hmm. So I, I, again, not to, to belabor the point, but debt is a problem. So uh, this is, I like to keep things, uh, you know, kind of uh, reinforced by external. So it's not just crazy, Steve. The whole world knows that China has a huge debt problem, mm-hmm. right? So there are things, maybe you've heard of the company Evergrande. This is, um, you know, a, a large property developer that is already stopped missing uh, or it's missed bond payments and stopped paying its U.S. Uh, dollar bondholders. It is in a position to kind of do a, a crash, but China is helping manage that crash. They're not bailing it out per se, but they are going to help uh, that crash on some level. But that's just one symptom of a greater problem. Yeah. And by the way, some people are saying, you know, Evergrande is being that symptom of a greater problem could be worse than the U.S. housing market crash. And for those who don't know this, China's overall GDP, 30% of it is related to real estate. Whereas maybe five to six percent of that in the Western countries would be the GDP. Mm-hmm. So if you have 30 percent of your economy at risk and it all has kind of a crash, you know, kind of a bubble uh, that pops, 
you got a big problem. Yeah. Now, why why does this relate to Amazon sellers? You may be wondering. If housing crashes and and people in China think that their wealth went from you know A down to B, they feel more inclined to you know uh, charge higher prices, right? Or try to make up that that perceived wealth decrease. Yeah. Or it could just be as simple as not being able to get cash and credit for their operations where they could in the in the past. Money was more free flowing. All of these constrict production and they are potential risks for uh, factories in China and therefore customers of those factories. Yes, I totally agree. So uh, just as an example, um, you know, Japan had a, a similar bubble uh, burst when Japan's housing in the 80s was worth four times more than the entire American housing market. Japan's a quarter of the size and it was four times bigger. That's an eight time variance, right? Mm. That, that means their housing was too expensive. Yeah. Uh, I don't have those same ratios on China off the top of my head, but let's just say China uh, housing is going to be a problem. And China knows there's trouble. So as I like to say, they're going bridezilla on everybody. Do you, do you know this term bridezilla, Danny? No, I don't. Go on, explain to everyone. I didn't think you would. Uh, and by the way, kudos to you. Well, I didn't know what triage was, was I? What's well, the context at the hospital? So hit me. Well, bridezilla is far, far less refined. Uh, so bridezilla is like a, a reality show where crazy brides who are getting married are going nuts on everybody. They turn into kind of Godzilla, right? So they right. smashed it up. And so they – they are often irrational. They are often loud. They are often uh, unfriendly to be around, yet in, in the happiest experience of their lives, right? But China is now acting and behaving in ways that have similar similar mm -hmm. vibes. And so I'm going to give you some, again, additional symptoms. So uh, no question that China's Evergrande is going to default. No question that uh, China has implied or put this new uh, policy forward called common prosperity or shared prosperity. Um, and that has started to regulate and beat down a bunch of tech companies in China to the tune of those companies listed on uh, U.S. stock markets losing a total of $3 trillion so far this year. So $3 trillion of wealth vanished from Chinese tech companies due to some of the, the things that China's doing, the bridezilla moves I'm going to articulate further here. Yeah. Um, defaults in China make its credit harder to get. That means our factory guys have a harder time getting money. And everybody who's on the top of the food chain in China monetarily and financially are running for cover, right? Because uh, this common prosperity is coming for everybody. And at the same time, factory activity is contracting in China. Okay. In April, it contracted. It contracted again in August of 2021. Oh, actually, in August 2021, it contracted for the first time since the pandemic, basically. Right. On top of it all, they can't find enough workers, right? Now, there is a high unemployment situation in China because they're outputting a bunch of university students and so forth, but they're still having trouble finding workers, and we'll talk more about that why. So here's a bridezilla move. Uh, China has decided that uh, what they call the sissy pants celebrities, uh, the boy bands and, and some of the, uh, let's just say, uh, softer side of men are not welcome in entertainment and have been banned. 
Uh, K-pop has been banned universally in China. Do you know K-pop, Danny? Another. So you're in the music. Maybe you know this one. No, I'm at the game for a number of years, but no, I've not heard of K-pop. Well, well, this is. I mean, I don't remember this from the slides. Sissy Pants celebrates banned in China. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, mad. President Xi said, "We don't want boy bands. We don't want sissy pants culture." This right. is the, the translation. Basically, going. If you have a, a show that's about war hero men, or you have a show about macho men, or you have a show about anything that that President Xi thinks is good, great. But if it's anything that they consider sissy pants, it's banned. Not just banned from TV, like you can't make a new show. All of the old stuff has been removed. K-pop, which is Korean kind of boy band pop art uh, stuff, and I can't say I know any of the names, but like all of their their social media, every part of them has been deleted from the Chinese internet. Like it never existed. And it was huge in China. Uh, so this is a, uh, it's almost like footloose where they're like, no more music, no more dancing. Right. right. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. So now, being, being a little bit in between here with this. So uh, what we're saying is that they don't want their culture to change that they want just manly masculine men and they feel like these bands are more feminized is that well that's part of it but part of it is just to distract from i think some of the bigger issues we've talked about which are debt and energy problems right and there will be food problems in china too so some of this is just to distract it's also and again this is a bit of speculation uh and combined with some known facts that President Xi feels pressure from some of his rivals in China. Those rivals, including Den Jiamen, uh, the guy who brought us uh, Tiananmen Square, mm -hmm. he still exists, the Tiananmen Square guy. But right now she's in power. Even though Jiamen uh, is not ready to go back into power, he's not. He's too old for that, he wants somebody friendly with him, and she is not friendly to him. Right. Den Jiaoping, or I can't pronounce the names very well. Pardon me, everybody. But – he was perfectly fine. He's the one who instituted kind of the corruption culture. It's like everybody gets a taste and it's going to be systemic and it's going to be beautiful. And his families and his allies all invested in the entertainment business and in the tech business. His, his grandson, for example, was the first venture capital firm in Alibaba. So tech and entertainment is where the president's enemies are. And if you're a conspiracy theorist, that's the main reason he's doing it. Otherwise, he's just doing it to clean up the culture. Right. Now, to move on, the teachers on a financial concern, teachers and public servants, uh, servants who get bonuses have been asked, not just asked, they've been demanded to give the bonuses back to the local government. And as an example, this is not like a 2% bonus or a 5% bonus. Many of those bonuses could be the equivalent of the teacher's annual salary. And the government is so focused on getting that money back, they said, we're going to sweep your account on this day, and if you don't have the money in there, you automatically now have a loan due to this bank, and the bank's going to you know, give that money to the government. So wow. it's like auto, auto loans. This is significant and unprecedented. This implies that local governments, which have – I can't remember the exact amount. Something like $8 trillion worth of debt to the local governments, that is pressuring them, and the number one way those uh, – those, uh, provinces make money, Danny. They sell land to the property developers. Right. And we just talked about the property developers in trouble. So we've got a we've got a big problem here. So 
coronavirus continues to uh, be reported throughout China, right? So this is part of part of this problem. And again, we've we've talked about. I'm just giving multiple sources in in cases of the visual audience here, of where the local governments are clawing back bonuses. Now, by the way, China's decided that 996 is not legal. Yeah. <laughs> it's you can't make people work overtime China anymore. Steps in to regulate brutal 996 work culture. Exactly. So that's what BBC News, here. isn't it? Well, look, that looks like BBC. Yeah, it's BBC News. Yeah. Yeah, that's BBC. But this is this is widely known, known, and I'll, I'll show you some other examples. And part of what I did is I took things that I that I knew or assumed, and then I went out and tried to prove them independently. Mm. And so the Brookings Institute uh, did a big study about a new thing, which you kind of alluded to earlier, Danny, in the Western cultures, which is the lying flat movement. Um, it's it's a little different. You you talked about Western cultures. People don't want to go work in assembly lines or factories necessarily. No. They want to work higher up on the food chain. Well, the the young millennials in China said, we have no intention of working 996. I'd rather be a, a food delivery guy and play video games and hang out with my friends. Hmm. That's what they want to do, right? Yeah. So it's like a peaceful revolution of people just literally lying flat is uh, this movement. And what that means is they're, when they step out of the rat race, when they step out of that that as one of the articles that I shared earlier showed, there people are having trouble finding workers. This impacts Chinese sellers if they don't have enough labor. Hmm. And what happens if you have less supply and demand remains high? Price go up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah? Yeah. Now, by the way, uh, this is uh, another article that talks about 996. They've declared it illegal policy inside of China. Hmm. And in uh, a, a further... I have something to do with now with millennials in in some level powered in charge in the government as well that have made it legal illegal well sorry. i mean I, I that's a reasonable point of speculation i don't know that my right. instinct is that it is because that has been part of the tech success that china's mm -hmm. cracked down on it they're also seeing the lay flat movement as a serious uh productivity problem for the country yeah. and so they're saying you know what uh, maybe the people are right. Maybe they shouldn't have to work nine out nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week. Yeah. But the point is, well, everything that got them there, education, which they're they're you know uh, clawing back teacher bonuses, uh, you know property development, home ownership, that's in trouble, right? Now nine nine six work culture, all of these things are being attacked, hmm. and uh, teachers who offer tutoring after hours are now being fired. Yeah. By the way. China has made the tutoring industry illegal to operate as a profit. If if they're going to stay in business, they have to be a nonprofit. Wow. So uh, the tutoring industry is massive there. And again, part of that maniacal over-the-top focus on education, they're, they've just destroyed that entire business overnight. Yeah. They've made playing video games uh, for people under 18. You can only play three days, uh, three hours a week. Lots and lots of things. So in summary, all right, I won't read all of these out for everybody, uh, but for the, if you're on the, the video version, you can see a list of things. All of the things that got China where it is, education, 996, you know, kind of capitalism, all of these things are starting to uh, work against China now. And and particularly the fact that the debt with, with um, Evergrande, Fantasia and other companies that nobody's ever heard of. There's twelve billion dollars or twelve trillion dollars of bonds that are going to potentially be in default, and mm -hmm. that is a bunch of money that will be problematic. So that's not going to be 
I, I'm not saying the world's coming to an end. It doesn't even look like necessarily a Lehman moment, but it means there's going to be a lot of pressure on capital, a lot of pressure on jobs, and and there's already pressure on power, as we have discussed. Yeah. All right. So now we'll do some rapid fire stuff here. Because kids can only play video games three hours a week, kids are smart. They go rent adult games, <laughs> right? Of game accounts, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who saw that coming, right? So China now has outsmarted the kids and they're requiring every single game company to put in facial recognition so the kids can't outsmart the game by just yeah. running an adult account. Can you believe this? I can now, yeah. Yeah. So Evergreen will have profound consequences. They're already defaulting. They, they have, a, in technicality, probably another two weeks before they're in, in uh, legal default, but they have missed their payments. They have 30 days to cure, and it's going to have impact. Biden and she met and basically said, we shouldn't go to war. We shouldn't have problems with each other. And in fact, they did a deal for the Huawei executive uh, via Canada that showed some calming of the the um, I don't know the the Cold War mentality, but there's just as many Taiwanese actions that are happening that uh, show problems. Australia is going, hey, WTO, stop letting China step on our necks, right? China uh, forbids right now coal imports and steak, and has reduced soy and other imports from Australia. Really, at great great impact to Australia. And Catherine Tai, who's in the picture, if you're on the visual version, she's the U.S. trade representative who is very much putting into place every single one of the Trump trade policies. Now, she's a Biden person, hmm. and she's a trade lawyer. She is operationalizing every single Trump policy. So for those who think that Trump policies and tariffs are going to go away, they're not. They're, they're now being operationalized. Uh, by the way, Catherine Tai, as a little uh, memo to China, I suppose, her family is from uh, Taiwan. And so if that's not a you know a shout out to China, I don't know what is. And again, she and, and Biden have met recently and they you know agree not to go into conflict. But the commodity boom is what we care about as Amazon sellers. Everything is going higher, right? 13-year highs on inflationary pressures across all commodities. And that is a problem for Amazon sellers. Hmm. Uh, the tech kind of beatdown that's happening in China is really their position as a, as a protecting gig workers, right? Reducing the 996. But the tech was one of the most successful parts of China. And that's also been under attack from the common prosperity or shared prosperity movement. Right. Uh, all of this means supply chain is more and more difficult. Uh, China is taking English out of a bunch of schools, which was part of their, you know, success in, in getting Western uh, uh, countries to buy from them, uh, they seem to be going backwards. And their president, she seems to be making everything in Chinese culture over again, right? They're, they're doing a full makeover. And they talk about in, in Wall Street Journal that they Beijing wants the money, but not the capitalism. Uh, manufacturers are moving out of China routinely. And again, if you're on the visual version, I'm putting multiple data points uh, in here from all over the world, by the way, Asian Net, Arabian News, Fortune, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. This is not just crazy Steve talking. This is uh, multiple people. And all of this just means that we have to be on full alert in if we're doing business in China, right? 
all of these new policies, the, the common prosperity, the laying flat, all of this leads to instability. And what that means for us as sellers is we need to be very um, reinforced, very focused on reinforcing relationships, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And the fact that COVID is not over, the sequel's beginning again, these are brand new articles. All of this is within the last 30 days, by the way, uh, Danny, that I'm sharing this. Right. And there is going to be again and again and again pressure. And just last week, Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade rep, said China is committing unfair trade practices, which means we're going into a new round of China negotiations. So what do you think about all that, Danny? It's a lot. It's a lot to take in, yeah. But um, again, you just have to keep moving through it. It's like, again, goes back to the point the skies are not falling. Education is important to know what to do next or at least to have a point of navigation. That's right. And frankly, everybody listening, um, you know, this is what Danny has done so well with seller sessions and building that community and what a wonderful live event it was. And everybody comes to rely on Danny for just kind of no nonsense, no BS, what's happening in the world. Well, we're trying to make sure you guys don't get blindsided as these changes happen, right? Instead of you being last to know, you're first to know, and or at least in the leading edge, right? The larger companies know this. But uh, I want you guys to know that China will continue to struggle with energy, which is a problem. They're even going to struggle with food, which is a bigger problem. They continue to struggle already with capital outflow. Anybody who can get money out of China is trying to get it out, yeah. which means the amount of credit and the amount of capital inside of China to, to make products, it becomes more pro problematic, more expensive, again, adding to inflationary pressures. And finally, the COVID nightmare is not over there. In fact, in China, I would argue it's just beginning. And that will even lead, my prediction is, to civil unrest. And I, I could give examples where it's already happened but there's no point in belaboring it. All of this is just to say, follow what's happening, not the, you know, what they say is going to happen, right? Pay attention to what people do, not what they say. Yeah. Now, I, I, I summarize this by saying a contrasting point, or at least a, a point of context, which is China has extraordinarily resilient, smart, innovative people, right? They can evolve. They will meet these challenges on some level, but it could come at costs, right? Whether the financial costs or social costs or just inconvenient costs that we can't yet calculate, you guys should know that this is coming. And it doesn't mean we have to flip a switch today and panic. It just means we need to be informed. And I can say this, that in the next 10 years, the international trade will change more than in the last 40. Yeah. And I, I haven't even got into you know, all of the military pieces or all the, um, you know, kind of energy economic pieces. But I can just say that the, the world is changing and I, I encourage you guys to pay attention to these changes and understand that as complications show up, we just need to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I put on a list on the screen here, Danny, that, you know, when China has debt, that means more risk. When China has high unemployment, that means slower production at higher prices. When China has, uh, you know, social issues to deal with, like cracking down on tutoring and 996 and the rest, that means that we become less and less of a priority. And then the China aging population, which is kind of a, an underlying problem for all of this stuff, increases labor, increases prices, but it also uh, increases the pressure that the government feels. So I encourage everybody to do to practice something called dual vision. Have you 
Are you have I shared this with you before, Danny? No, cool. Do you have a sense of what it is? Yeah, so dual vision basically just means you have to keep both today, now, in the in the you know, one mirror and the what's it look like three years from now in another mirror, right? Or at least two screens, however you want to think of it. You have to think about what are we doing today to enforce relationships. We're doing math about profitability, we're running RFQs, we are certainly using China as our probably our number one factory. Then we're going to start learning about raw materials. We're going to learn about supply methodology. We're going to learn about engineering of our products and how they're built. And you know, are there other ways? What what machines are used? What components are used? Really getting into the detail. We're going to start that now. And then in the future, over the course of the next three years, we're going to learn about how we build new relationships. We're going to still have to do math. And we're going to start looking at alternative markets. If you sell in the United States, North America, for sure, is a place you should look to source. And I can today, I can make textiles cheaper here. I can make uh, oil-based products cheaper here, largely. Not electronics just yet, or at least cheap electronics. I can do medical equipment cheaper in the U.S. and Mexico. But there's lots of things that are far more competitive than you guys might initially or instinctively believe. And then if you have you know, other uh, alternatives, or if you're selling the EU, then you'll look at India, Vietnam, Thailand. I actually think you will look at the United States as a place to source from in the you know next few years as well. All of that related to that supply chain we've talked about ad nauseum here. So you want to think about how to make investments on equipment, knowledge, and raw materials that will secure your future. Danny, any summary on that? Just it goes back to my point, and I sound like I'm rabbiting on over the same thing. The difference of you know, business is to a point where at least we profit, it's a zero sum game. It really comes down to money, resilience, and smarts. And like you said, with the dual thing, I haven't really heard of the terminology for the dual vision. You have to keep your eyes open. And again, this is not scare tactics, this is just education to give you. You know, moving forward, I do understand if you're doing five or six, uh, five or six figures and you're like a smaller seller, this will have an impact on you. But that's why we have innovation. This is why we have entrepreneurs and this is why we need to problem solve at every given turn. We don't sit here as Steve and I. Steve is a far more successful entrepreneur than me. But I pride myself on, on solving problems. My job across three businesses is to put out fires and I do it every day. And it, all it is, is a learning muscle. Like even with my wife, can't believe with everything that's going on and the chaos around you and you're still calm. You learn that. You don't start that at day one. What happens? You have a small problem. It gets larger. It gets larger and larger. And all what happens is there's zeros that get added to the end of it, but it's relative to your position of where you are at. Right? So if you're doing five or six, uh, five to six figures, that's going to be an impact on you. If you're doing seven figures, it's an impact on you. If you do eight figures, if you, you know, it doesn't really matter till it's just relative to your position. The most important thing is you focus, you stay calm, you get the job done. At the end of the day, we've success, right? Success is just rented and the rent is due every day of the week. And as an entrepreneur, the burden of performance is always on you. If you remember that the sole accountability comes down to you, you have less problems. Because what you do is you get up every day and you just get on with it. And it's a learning muscle that you would develop over time.
No, I really, really agree with that. You know, the conditioning of an entrepreneur is just in the real world of problem solving. And yeah. so that muscle you're talking about is precisely what needs to be developed. And the the kind of intellectual curiosity that why are things happening? You know, if your supplier calls you and says the, the shipment's late, you don't hang up the phone and go, gosh, darn, sorry, that's late. You figure out why. You need to drive the why through every part of your business until you understand the why. Yeah. Once you do, that's that helps you say, well, I can solve this problem by doing this or that. And, you know, no matter your size, you know, if you're super small, maybe you start thinking about maybe I'll just develop a product in Mexico to begin with. And again, yeah. you can feel free to go to Empowery and they will refer somebody to you at no cost uh, to you. I have no um, you know, incentives to do that but they will be able to help you build something in Mexico from the get-go instead of starting in China. I still use China, just to be clear. We use China every single day, but we continue to try to move away and try to reduce our reliance on a less stable place. Yeah. So, uh, Danny, as I led into uh, part one, I mentioned that SOPbox.co, which is uh, yes. one of uh, my company divisions under parsimony has a free demo. If people want to check out how to manage your uh, standard operating procedures, SOPs, uh, they go to sopbox.co, check out the free demo. There's a 75% lifetime uh, exclusive offer. So you get a 75% off coupon, SOPBOXBETA, all in caps, 75 is the coupon code. And you guys can go check that out. Um, I think it, you know it's it's critical to our business to have this these SOPs available for a global you know workforce, and even if they don't use SOPs every day, they all know where they are. It's searchable. It really is something that I find value in. So that's really it for me today, Danny. I appreciate you uh, hosting and taking the time, and I appreciate everybody who's listening. You know, trying to get educated. And hopefully, you listen to all four parts of our mini series. Indeed. And if you're listening via my platform, make sure you go and subscribe to Steve's uh, podcast as well. Steve, thank you for coming on today. And obviously the preceding uh, episodes that we've done, it's been fascinating. I've learned a lot from this. As we said, a lot of people from Seller Sessions see it as one of the standout presentations as well. But again, it's timely and it's important to get it out there. So thank you for sharing so freely. Happily to do it. I love entrepreneurs. Hmm. Indeed. Right. On that note, let's sign off as we've got to go off and do some uh, for paid for work, if you like. Uh, guys, <laughs> uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Again, appreciate your time. And I want to say a big thank you for all the support with Seller Sessions. We're nearly up to, I think, about 750 episodes. The fact that you have to put up, pick, put up with my East London accent um, many times a week, uh, not forgetting the work that uh, Isabella and Sharon do on the platform, which is very important. But we're here for you guys. If you have any questions, email uh, – well, don't email Steve, but you can email me, and that's danny at sellersessions.com. Uh, that's not Steve being rude. He's just mega busy as well. But if you need anything, reach out to us. Uh, again, thank you for your support. Take care of yourself and your family. Much love, and we'll see you again soon.